Recently, in the Washington Post newspaper, there was a fascinating article, almost always is, but this one caught my eye because it was on pizza. And who can resist reading about pizza in the Washington Post? Now, this particular article was about the dynamics around having pineapple on pizza. Pineapple on pizza. Now, something that I was not aware of was that this is a, yeah, I already see some, uh, <laughs> this is a major issue in the United States today. Actually, it's international because pizza first got pineapple on it commercially in Canada. So it's a whole North American issue as to whether or not this is a good thing or not. And what I didn't realize is that there are thousands of words written every year on blogs and in food reviews and restaurant reviews as to whether or not pineapple should be on pizza. And it's one of these I'm willing to die in this ditch kind of issues where people get insultive and mean and vindictive and friendships dissolve over whether or not there's pineapple on the pizza when people go out together. Again, I had no idea this was a seething issue in our society, and I'm sorry our churches have not addressed it with resolutions and various teachings. So the Washington Post decided that they need to investigate this with a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek, investigate it further. So the food writer got together a panel of, I believe it was about 25 people, to experience pineapple on pizza in various ways. A third of the people that were selected were lovers of pineapple on pizza, a third were haters, and a third were neutral. And they spent, I don't know how much time and how much money on getting numerous different pizzas from different restaurants in the Washington, D.C. area, so it is a certain selected group, and trying these out and gauging people's reactions. As it turns out, it's not so bad, just in case you're wondering how the article turned out. The people who thought it was terrible said if the sauce wasn't too sweet, then the pineapple worked if it was pineapple that was not packed in corn syrup. And so the pineapple wasn't too sweet. So, okay, you can stop wondering about that, but that's not the point of my sermon. <laughs> Might give you something to talk about during lunch, though. That's not the point of my sermon. The point that I wanted to gather from this is that one of the participants in the study, when filling out his essay question on pineapple and pizza, said he was struck going through this exercise, which took weeks, about how people seem to define themselves, about not whether or not they liked pineapple on pizza or not, but about the people who had the opposite view. That they define themselves by what the people who hated pineapple said if they were a pineapple lover. Or if they were a pineapple hater, they define themselves by what the pineapple lover liked. That they took the opposing argument and said, I am anti that. Now, if you want a Christian teaching on this, what I will tell you is you should simply be in favor of whatever form of pizza topping you want and not put down other pizza toppings. That'd be the good Christian loving thing to do. But we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with human beings, not just when it comes to pizza, but when it comes to all of life that involves the human race. And we come then, finally, to this morning's gospel. 
where, as you may have noticed in the opening line, there's that kind of distressing, to me, set of words that say that the apostles were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. It's long bothered me. There's all sorts of terrible results from lines like that that only occur in the Gospel of John, of anti-Semitism, of violence, of people literally being killed over language like that in the Gospel of John. So I want to give you a little bit of background out here, try to redeem this a little bit. First of all, what you may not know is that Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels written. It was written around the year 90, maybe even a little beyond that. And so it was roughly 60 or more years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And it was about 20 to 30 years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And what that meant was that the people who were putting together the Gospel of John, the community around the author of John, had probably very little, if any, firsthand experience of what the life of Jesus was like in terms of temple worship and things like that in Jerusalem. And it was the period in history when the people who were following Christ and the people who were going to remain fully Jewish first started to separate from one another. Until around the year of roughly 100, everyone worshipped together. Anyone who was Jewish or a follower of Christ, they may have been calling themselves Christians, some did, some didn't, they all worshiped together. They'd start the Sabbath in the synagogue and have the first half of the service that we experience today, everything up to the time we collect the money, all that is based on synagogue worship. And everyone would be worshiping together, and then after the synagogue worship ended, then the people who were following Christ would go off to one of their homes and do the same thing we do, celebrate the Eucharist. And people had been doing that for decades by the time John started to be written down. Things, though, had started to get a little difficult because the Romans were starting to crack down on Christians as subversives, as dangerous subversives to the emperor. And so Christians were increasingly being arrested and killed often in very grisly ways, thrown to the lines. That's when this kind, that kind of entertainment started. And so the people who were followers of Christ were not so comfortable anymore being with people to worship who were not also followers of Christ. They were afraid that the folks who saw them leave to go to the Eucharist part of the service would perhaps snitch on them, would turn them in to the Romans. So they started to worship separately. And one of the things that that pineapple pizza exercise tells us is that it's human nature to divide ourselves against others, to say we are not as to how to define ourselves. And so one of the things that happens in the Gospel of John is saying we are not and the others are Jews. We are not Jews. We are something else. They didn't use the term Christian within the gospel. And so, even though in the time that this gospel was written, Jews and the proto-Christians were very close, same families, spent lots of time together, did their, their civil jurisdictions together, divorces and marriages and all that, they did all together. 
when it came time for defining the community that was putting together the Gospel of John, they fell into that trap of us and them. They fell into that human nature trap of Jews and non-Jews. So, this little line here, and the other places it occurs in the Gospel of John, is not John saying the people who are Jewish are not loved by God. It's not the Gospel of John saying the people who are Jewish are not going to heaven, or any of those other things. That's been used to say. Instead, it's simply saying those are those guys that are not us. And we are this tiny little group that needs to define who we are and part of it is, we're the ones who no longer are going to worship in the synagogue. We're the ones who are no longer going to be there because it's not safe. There's something else here that we can also play with. And that is that any time in the Gospel of John the term the Jews is used, everyone in the story is Jewish. Everyone in this story is Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. So to say that the Doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Doesn't make sense unless we're willing to take the accurate historical interpretation as to what this shorthand meant for the people who were putting together and the first consumers of John's gospel. It's not about the Jews. It's instead about this formation of new congregations, of the ones that were followers of Christ and the ones that were going to stay with the traditional synagogue worship structure. There's something else we can do with this. It says that the apostles were locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They themselves are Jewish. I wonder if this could be about people being scared of themselves. Maybe, maybe the apostles were, were locked away with each other so that they would not forget who Christ had called them to become. They were still not quite there yet. They not yet experienced the risen Christ. They were, they were getting there, but they weren't there yet. And so maybe they were scared of backsliding. Maybe they were scared of giving up on Christ altogether and ignoring these amazing experiences and life-changing teachings they had been hearing for three years. Maybe that for fear of the Jews should really be read for fear of themselves. That if they didn't stay together, supporting each other, keeping each other on track, it'd be very easy just to go back to fishing or tax collecting or whatever the professions had been and ignoring all that they had learned and experienced with Jesus. It may be that this is how they held it together until they could get re-energized by Christ. And when Christ does appear in the room, he gives this amazing blessing, peace be with you. We just got to sing it. I'm so glad of that. And as the note in the hymnal said, it appears in other places in the Gospel of John. And it appears in other places in the Gospel of Luke and in the letters of Paul and all sorts of places. It appears in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And it's interesting to me that when people are fearful, God's blessing is, peace be with you. God doesn't say, you be powerful. 
God doesn't say, you're going to win. God doesn't say, your fears will be vanquished, and all who are giving you fear will be punished. Instead, God says, peace be with you. And I think that's the model. That's the way that Christ is giving his apostles on the first Easter, and that God continues to give us any time we seek it. Peace be with you. The peace of God can actually transform how we experience life. The things that give us fear can be put into perspective, perhaps even to the degree where we can think more clearly and therefore hear God's voice as to how we should move through a situation. But most of all, what the resurrected Christ shows us is that even when we're carrying the wounds of the most fear-filled times of our lives, in his case, being crucified, the peace of God can still transform us into loving, generous, world-changing individuals and communities. That if we let the peace of God fill us and fill all the people around us, then the world can become a better place. It's not easy. Sometimes it takes being crucified. Sometimes it takes going through the worst things we can imagine. There isn't a quick fix to gaining the peace of God. But it is what addresses fear. It is what heals fear. It is what gives us direction and a foundation on which to walk. In the last few months, it's terrible how many places of worship have been the focus of people's attacks. Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Google it, Hindu, the list goes on and on. Our places of worship should be safe, should be filled with peace, should be a place where we have no fear. But part of what we can see simply by looking at current events is that folks continue, and I'm going to say this purposely, and I don't mean it disrespectfully, people continue to kill each other over pineapple pizza because that's how irrelevant these viewpoints are to how God sees us. God, of course, is in tears over people being killed in a house of worship. But it's ridiculous when, the, the, when God doesn't need that kind of protection. God doesn't need someone else to be killed to save God's presence or God's perspective or God's truth. God loves all of us, all of creation. And we're absolute fools to think that anyone is excluded from that love and anyone certainly deserves to die because they're outside that love. That's just foolishness and sinfulness. Instead, we need to turn to that peace that passes all understanding and allow it to fill our minds and our hearts and guide our actions so that we can move beyond the violence that people see as the quick fix of how to get things right, how to even get things holy, which is mind-boggling that some think that. The peace that passes all understanding, the peace that Christ wishes us this morning, that the angels wished upon the shepherds on Christmas, and on and on and on. 
That's the peace that can change things. That's the peace that can change us. That's the peace that can help the world get beyond itself, get beyond our own prejudices about who's in and who's out, who's human and who's inhuman. We are all human. We are all beloved. We are all worthy of respect and care. We are all people deserving of peace. And so we have that Easter task that Christ gives the apostles this morning of going out and sharing that peace, allowing it to fill ourselves so it spills over into the people we encounter, that we may be instruments of God's peace, that we may be instruments of God's love and inclusion, that we may be people who speak and act as people who are filled with the peace that passes all understanding, that overcomes hatred, that overcomes exclusion, that overcomes the brokenness of this world, so that the presence of God, the love of God, is truly and really present in all whom we encounter and all who need it so much. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.